If you have your Bibles, if you take them and open them to Joshua chapter 9. <coughs> Joshua chapter 9. And at this point in our, our text, in the story, in this text of Joshua, in our study through Joshua, most of the stories have been somewhat familiar. Um, the walls of Jericho, uh, the crossing of the Jordan, even Achan and the devoted things that were stolen, and the battle of Ai. We're getting into a, a part of Joshua, though, that may not be as familiar, and so I want to take some time and read it for us this morning, um, the entirety of it. And so uh, Joshua chapter 9, we'll read the entire chapter. <clears throat> it's a bit long, but try to read along with me and engage. It is God's word to us this morning. It is truth for our life. So let's read together. Hear the word of the Lord. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions, took out uh, took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn and patched sandals on their feet, worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him, to the men of Israel, We've come from a distant country, and so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. How can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? Where do you come from? And they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord your God, we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go and meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now and make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It's, it was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day that we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. And these wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they've burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. And so the men took some of their provisions, don't miss this, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and, lead, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they made a covenant with them, and they heard that they were their neighbors and, what, and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, uh, Chephirah, Beeroth, Kirith, Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had swore to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders, but all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we've sworn. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. And so they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Verse 22, Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, 
Why did you deceive us, saying we are uh, very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And then they answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give all of the land and to destroy all of the inhabitants of the land from before you. And so we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. And so he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel and did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask right now for your spirit to come and teach it to us. God, I have no doubt that you have a much better sermon for us this morning than anything I could prepare. And so, Spirit, I'm dependent upon you. God, I need you to use this word in my own heart and in the heart of these, your people at Poplar Spring. So, God, come and change our hearts. Teach us by your scriptures this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> Remind you where we have been. Uh, last week, as Pastor Michael preached, we saw that Israel was obedient to God, and as a result, he provided a miracle, uh, a victory for them at Ai, now, the Battle of Ai. And the people celebrated God's provision, God's uh, protection over them, this victory in military. They, they celebrated that with a, a covenant renewal or a commitment renewal to what the law looked like for them. Um, what we saw was all of Israel before us in the text. And just to remind you, all of Israel standing before two mountains. That means every resident, every citizen, uh, every alien, every man, woman, child of Israel with the people of Israel standing before two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. As you get this picture in your mind, you can see all of these masses of people before these two mountains, and Joshua is reading every word of the law. The text was very clear to tell us last week, blessings and curses, Joshua read to them every single word of the law. And you guys think, my sermons are long. <laughs> can you imagine standing from these two mountains with all your children as Joshua is reading the law to them? As he read, the people responded. At first, the people at Mount Gerizim would respond and, and with a roaring amen as they affirmed and renewed their commitment to following God's law. And then it would roll across to Mount Ebal, and the people standing in front of Mount Ebal would uh, roar a mighty amen as they affirmed and, and repeated their commitment to the, to the law of God. And this sort of back and forth motion as the people responded to God's written word. It had to be an, an incredible sight. I mean, can you imagine what it looked like? Probably something like a, a, a crowd at a sporting event, right? You've seen if you've been in a, in a basketball arena or a football stadium where the chant will go from one side of the building to the other, something like, go, Tigers, go. Can we do that this morning? Could y'all? I'm just kidding. That would, be, that would be a beautiful thing, but we won't do that. It's a beautiful picture. Uh, the people of God in these, these spectacular moments of victory where God's blessed his people and he's, he's shown them his protection over them. And in response to that, they're in love with their God and they're rejoicing in his word and they're celebrating his law. I mean, what a beautiful picture. It's probably one of the high points of Joshua. And I really think that's what our worship gatherings should look like. If someone came into this room on any given Sunday morning not knowing what takes place in a church, that's what they should see. 
That, that there's a people here that are in love with their God. For some reason, they're in love with their God and they're delighting in his word in a book that's over 2,000 years old. And so the ceremony continues. They celebrate the law of God. And as it's completed, they pick up their belongings and they head back to their base camp at Gilgal. <clears throat> as, they, as they move back to Gilgal, they're preparing for the rest of the Canaanite campaign. And so that's sort of scene one. That's where Israel's at. And then sort of scene two is where we start this chapter with um, the, the Canaanites and what they're doing. So there's Israel back at Gilgal. They've just celebrated the law. And then you meet the Canaanites in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They, they all form an alliance is what you see in verse 1 and 2. It says that this alliance was formed so that they could fight against Israel together. Now their hope was that if we all come together, we band together, then maybe we can defend ourselves against this mighty nation of Israel and their mighty God that seems to be squashing everybody around them. That's not the only response, though. This is the point in the text where I kind of wish that the, the narrator of Joshua would just kind of had a little inserted verse here, like, you know, if you're scared, say you're scared. That's kind of what it feels like with all these Canaanite countries coming together and teaming up. But then you see the, the, the text goes on and in verse 3. The, there's some other folks that we're introduced to. And not all the surrounding people around Israel are, are, are coming together in a confederacy to fight against Israel. There are actually four tiny cities that together make up the people known as the Gibeonites. And this text really centers around this people. The Gibeonites were uh, different. They didn't form in this coalition uh, to fight against uh, Israel. And they had heard about the God uh, Jehovah. They had heard of Israel's God, and they knew that he was powerful, that he was mighty, that he could defeat any army, no matter what size. At least it seems like that's what they believed. And so they didn't join this group of people that were forming. Further, they, they, they did the math. I think they just probably looked at a map and said, hey, look, they just took out Jericho, and they took out Ai, and we're next. <laughs> Our four cities, the Gibeonites, we're, we're next. And so we have to do something. So they devised a plan. It's a different plan. And it began with brilliant costumes, right? They go and find the scruffiest old donkeys they could find, probably bony and ribs showing, uh, just worn out old donkeys that had lived a long, hard life. And they grabbed those, you know, dirty old donkeys and they found these old bags and sacks they laid over them. And then they, they looked around and found some old wineskins that were already bursting and falling apart. And they loaded them on the donkeys. And their goal was to look like they had traveled thousands of miles uh, to meet the Israelites. Then the men that climbed on top of the donkeys had found some old sandals that were falling apart. The soles were worn out. Their, their clothes were threadbare and, and worn with probably holes in them. And then finally they found some old moldy bread that would crumble when you touched it. And they traveled over to the camp of Israel. Later we'll find out it was only a three-day journey. They travel over to Israel, and along with the, these costumes that they're talking about, they have a fascinating story that they fabricated. You see, they, they tell Israel, we've traveled thousands of miles, and, and, and we've heard about God, your, your God's power, Yahweh's might and his strength. We heard about Israel, and, and I mean Egypt, and, and how he, he, he led you out of Egypt and killed Pharaoh's army. And we heard about the, the Amorite kings east of the Jordan that you also destroyed. Notice here, too, they didn't mention Jericho or I. This is all a part of their plan. This is all a part of their elaborate scheme. See, if they would have mentioned Jericho and I, it would be proof that they hadn't traveled from thousands of miles away because those most recent events they wouldn't have been able to hear about. And so they held out, they held out from talking about those things. Then they show them the moldy bread. See this, see this bread? 
It's proof of our story. When we left, this bread was hot out of the oven, and now it's falling apart. It's moldy and crumbly. And they spoke about God with reverent words and words of honor. We know the power of your God. It's all a buildup. It's all a part of this plan and this scheme to trick Israel into making a covenant with them. And here's the thing. It worked. Their plan worked brilliantly. I mean, Joshua and the elders, the leadership of Israel, they believed the Gibeonites. They, they believed what they were being told, that they really were from a foreign land and they were coming to make a peace treaty with them. Now, side note at this point, if they actually had been from a foreign land, somewhere a long way away from Israel, this would have been perfectly acceptable. God made allowance for this. He made it possible for them to make treaties and alliances with other peoples from far away. But concerning people in the land, he had specifically told them, do not do it. Do not make treaties. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One, they'll lead you astray. You make treaties with people that are close to you that worship other gods, and they'll lead you to worship other gods. But two, going all the way back to Genesis 15, 16, a text I told you to make note of, this conquest was about more than just giving Israel a land. That was certainly part of it. He had promised to give them a land, but he had also promised that he would judge the nations and that Israel would be the tool that he used to do that. That, that this conquest was just as much about punishing sin and, and judgment upon pagan idolatry as it was about them getting a land. So don't make peace treaties. You'll be breaking the very thing that I was using you to do. And so then back to our passage, they believed these Gibeonites. And they bought it, hook, line, and sinker. I mean, look at verse 14 and 15. You'll see how this unfolds. Look at verse 14. And so the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. You're going to want to underline that. That's key to our text. Highlight it. Make sure you note it. They didn't ask counsel from the Lord. They trusted their own eyes, their own ears. And then in verse 15, you see Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So Joshua makes peace, shalom, with the Gibeonites where he should not have. It should have never happened. It was wrong. It was uh, very much disobedience. I've already mentioned this as a side note, but let me show you in Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you want to turn there, you can. If you want to note it, that's fine as well. Deuteronomy chapter 7 gives us these specific details and commands from God. Deuteronomy 7 verse 1 says this, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, that list should sound familiar, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, here's the, the command, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. And then with incredible, uh, incredibly accurate specificity, Joshua and Israel did exactly what God told them not to do. He, they did exactly what God commanded them not to do in Deuteronomy 7. And it stems from a hasty decision that's made without consulting God. They didn't go before the Lord their God. The text clearly tells us that. And think about what they, where they've been. They've just been celebrating the victories of Jericho and I. Specifically, they've been celebrating those victories uh, at Gerizim and Ebal in front of these two mountains by celebrating, cheering for, chanting, having this big pep rally for a commitment to God's law. The very next thing that we see them do is break that law, break that command, break what God had commanded of them. And so all of this, it, it, it sets up for us, this is sort of an intro, <laughs> sets up for us where we're headed with the rest of our time this morning. In the time that we have left, I want to ask us three questions to consider. 
The three questions to consider, I think we see them in the text, and I think they're applicable for our lives. Number one, why do we fail? Why do we, as followers of Jesus, as Christians, as the people of God, why do we fail? Number two, what do we do when we fail? What do we do when we fail? And number three, what does God do when we fail? What does God do when we fail? So number one, why do we fail? I think the text is clear to us. We've already mentioned it in verse 14. It spells it out for us as, as clear as can be. Verse 14, the end of verse 14. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. They're, they're making this covenant. They're making this promise, this oath with this, this Gibeonite people without consulting the Lord. All of us can see that. It's clearly stated in the text. The real issue for us, the real question boils down to, uh, if they did not seek counsel from the Lord, why is it that they did not seek counsel of the Lord? Why is it that they made this decision devoid of God without seeking his face? I think it was probably several reasons I'll give us three this morning. Uh, three reasons that they failed by not seeking the Lord's face. Number one, because their eyes and ears were deceived. Their eyes and ears were deceived. Think about the Gibeonites. They came in with their moldy bread and their smelly costumes, and it, 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 it looked legit to them. It looked right to them. The Israelites trusted their appearances. I mean, it, it appeared to be reality. They could hear and see what seemed to be the truth. I mean, they, the story was checking out. Everything that the Gibeonites were saying, it seemed to be proved in, in, their, in their look and in their appearance and their smell and their, what, they're, what they're seeing. Second, second reason they, they failed to seek the counsel of the Lord here is because everything had been going so well for Israel. I mean, think about what we've already what we've seen in the last few weeks. They were on a roll. I mean, it was it was like they'd enter a, entered a boxing match with with Jericho and I, and and gotten a knockout in the first round. There was no massive loss of life. There were no massive military uh, battles. I mean, Jericho fell without anyone lifting a sword. And then I, when they defeated I, the Lord did the same thing. It was it was this incredible plan that the God had had for them, and they came in and conquered I. They, they were on a roll. Everything seemed to be going great. God was blessing them, and things were good, and they were. They thought they didn't need to seek the counsel of God. It's so predictable, right? Like, we do this. <laughs> We're so often right here when things are terrible in our lives, when our lives are falling apart, when we find out about a diagnosis or a, or a car wreck or, or a loved one that's in some kind of terrible condition, we hit our knees and we beg God. And it's like the devil throws everything in the world at us, and the first thing we do is we go to our knees in prayer. In a New York second, we're seeking God's face. We're on our face before him, uh, begging him for mercy, begging him for direction. But when things are going our way, when things seem to be going great, we often fail to, to pray. We act like we don't need him. We act like well, things, are, things are fine. Uh, we, we often forget to even to go before him every day. And then when we do go before him, we often fail to remember things to even pray for or fall asleep in prayer. Like, oh gosh, what was that? I, can't, I don't pray a very long time because I just I don't know what to pray for. I can't think of anything. When I bow my head, I get sleepy because I can't think of And we, we do this, right? Things are going well. We, we, we fail to pray. But third, there's a third reason I think they fail to seek the counsel of God. It's because they think it's no big deal. They minimized the significance of God's word. They minimized the commands of God, though they had just renewed their commitment to the commands of God. And this is what happens. Some fellows show up in a bunch of raggedy old clothes with some old donkeys. And they think, well, they, these guys only want you know, a pass from going to war. They just want peace. Surely that's a good thing, right? Uh, they, they, they just want to pass from us annihilating them. I can, I can understand that. And their story seems to check out. It seems to be no big deal. So why bother God with it? Why would I bring this before God? He's got bigger things to be dealing with. 
It's a major failure on their part. Friends, here's the reality. If God is who he says he is, he's identified himself as our father. He wants us to come to him with seemingly small things, with what would seem like the mundane things of our everyday life. He desires for the, of us to bring those to him. He desires communication with us in the midst of, of seemingly unimportant matters. And I know uh, Michael hit some of this last week with, with bringing it before the Lord when, when, uh, when, when, we're, when we're thinking they're just, they're just decisions that really don't even affect our spiritual lives or our eternity. They're just small things. Bring them before the Lord. He desires to hear from us. So for all these reasons, they did not seek God in this decision. They didn't seek the counsel of the Lord. For all these reasons, they were prayerless. And for all these reasons, they failed. And the consequences were great. I've read to you the commands of God in Deuteronomy 7. Verses 1 and 2 about, about not making treaties, about not making peace with Canaanite neighbors. But if you skip down to verse 4 of chapter 7, this is in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7 verse 4, you see why. God gives them the command, but then he also is gracious enough to tell them why. He says this in verse 4. For they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. That's why, Israel. That's why you don't make peace treaties with these pagan nations. They'll turn your sons away from me. They'll lead them into, into idolatry. And then he says this and continues in verse 4. And the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and would destroy you quickly. You read Deuteronomy 4, chapter 7 and verse 4 in light of what we just read in Joshua chapter 9. And you go, no Joshua, no Joshua, no elders, no leadership of Israel. Why in the world would you make this hasty, prayerless decision and allow idolatry into the land, into the camp of Israel? This is precisely what God warned you about. This is precisely what he was telling you not to do. Well, most of you know that I love college football. Uh, I love watching the, the projections and which, which team should beat which team and, and the over and under on scores and, and the, the probabilities and the margins of victory. And it's funny to watch because, well, most of all, because I love to see when, when Vegas is wrong and they miss it completely. They're absolutely wrong. That's always fun. But it's also interesting because if you watch like a, a matchup, and you find out that a quarterback was injured in practice during the week, or a, or a coach, some scandal comes out and the coach is, is, is fired or not allowed to coach for the next game. Those, those probable margins of victory just tick one way or the other, based on, on, on factors like that. Uh, the, 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 the predictions will change. And I think here in Joshua, the probability of waywardness, the projection for idolatry, uh, for intermarrying into pagan families, for generations of children that would go on to serve other gods, it just went uh, up in a massive way from a probability standpoint. You've allowed these pagan nations right next door to live among you, and the consequences of that is, is there's a much greater probability that now you're going to be idol worshipers. You're right next door to them. All because Joshua and the leadership failed to go to God in prayer, and to seek his counsel. And so as we make application here, we see this Gibeonite strategy, right? With the things that they did, the, the, the deception that they used, the, the plan that they had, the scheme that they had to trick Israel. It's not a new thing. It's not that they were just Oscar award-winning actors. This has been a strategy of Satan for millennia. This has been something Satan has been up to from the very beginning. In Genesis, he was the deceiver. You read John chapter 8 in the New Testament. And John chapter 8 verse 43 says this, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of the father, you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and it does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
You see this trait of Satan in, in Ephesians chapter 6, in Matthew chapter 24, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Over and over and over again, Satan's portrayed as the deceiver. He lies and he tries to do anything he can do to get you to doubt the word of God, the commands of scripture, the authority of God's word for our lives. And so instead of seeking his will in prayer, we trust our eyes, we trust our ears in a moment to make a decision. Instead of seeking his counsel, we rely on our feelings in any given moment, what what our feelings may be toward this thing that's presented to us. Well, I feel like it's pretty good. Who cares what you feel? Go to God's word. What has God said about it? Instead of trusting his word, we think that that whatever this decision is that we're facing is no small matter. There's no spiritual significance here when we know that all of life is lived before God. So friends, think of all that would be different if we were diligent in seeking the face of God. Think about the people who, who would be spared from broken marriages had they sought the face of God instead of going on what they felt. Think about, think about all the, the anguish and brokenness in your own life that could have been avoided had God's word been heeded. I mean, all of us can point to scenarios in our lives where we know we lived through the consequences of sin because of decisions that were made prayerlessly. Because we went and made some decision without seeking God's counsel. Never trust your judgment apart from Christ's counsel. That's clear to us in the text. A very familiar passage. Many of you can probably quote it. But I wonder how many of us are living by it. Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And it will be healing for your flesh and refreshment for your bones. That's God's word. Trust him with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. That's what Joshua and Israel were doing. They thought this is no big deal. Second question. Second question, why do we fail? But second question, what happens when we fail? What do we do when we fail? What do we do when we fail? Uh, Verses 17 through 21 record for us the uh, beautiful rebound by the leadership of Israel. Look at verse 17. You may think, well, I didn't hear anything beautiful in that text. Look at verse 17 through 18. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. That means they're going to Gibeon. Now their cities were Gibeon. Uh, Chephirah, Biroth, Kiriath, Jerim. And the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had swore to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. What an astonishing observation after the annihilations that we saw at Jericho. Every living thing died. I, every living thing dies. They get to the cities of, of the Gibeonites and not a single hair on a single head is harmed. And yet the people of God, the people of Israel, they don't understand this. And so in verse 18, it says, at the end of verse 18, it says, Then all of the congregation murmured against the leaders. You hear that, and usually murmuring is a bad thing. Perhaps some of this was. Perhaps some of them were just, you know, war-hungry and and bloodthirsty. But I don't think that has to be the case. I think some of this could have been a, a righteous murmuring, right? Maybe some of them remembered Deuteronomy 7. Maybe some of them remembered what God had commanded in the law. And remember that they were supposed to devote everything to destruction. And now the leadership, they're not doing that. And so why? Why are, they, why are you not doing this? Why are you failing to uphold what God's clearly commanded to us in his law? They didn't know. And so the text continues. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We've sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we may not touch them. In essence, this is what Joshua and Israel, the leadership of Israel saying. We will not sin again. We're not going to continue in sin. We're not going to continue making these choices like this. 
And two wrongs don't make a right. I mean, that's, that's essentially what he's saying. We'll not fail again by breaking the covenant that we've made before our God. Even if the entire nation of Israel, even if all of you come against us and murmur, we're going to uphold this covenant, regardless of the consequences. We won't break this oath that we've made before God. And so it seems contradictory, right? They have a high view, a high enough view of God that they will not break this oath, this covenant they've made in his name, yet they made this oath and covenant by, by not seeking his face. It's, 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 you know, it's a paradox. It's a difficulty in the text. They won't break this oath, but they made this oath because they wouldn't seek this God's face. In chapter 15 of Psalms. Psalm chapter 15, verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Verse 4, chapter 15 of Psalms, we get the answer. The one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. The Lord takes covenants and oaths seriously. He who does not take the Lord's name in vain, he's the one who will sojourn in your tent. He's the one who will dwell on your holy hill. You may be thinking, yeah, but... There's a loophole here, right? Like, we can all clearly see that. There's a loophole here. They were deceived, and the only reason they ever even made this covenant uh, in the first place was because they were lied to. So the covenant should be nullified, right? It was made on false premises. It should not be binding. That's our natural response. We want to fight, right? We want to we demand our rights. Like, I made that covenant, but if I'd have known all the facts, I wouldn't have. This is not an isolated event. If you remember your Old Testament story of Jacob and Esau, Right? The story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob steals the birthright from his brother by tricking his blind father. And the stories are, are strikingly similar. There's some really good acting going on. There's some costumes that are taking place in both scenarios. But just because there was deception, it didn't make the covenanted uh, birthright null and void. Isaac upheld his promise, his covenant, his oath. Our word is, is important. And the point here is that our commitment to God, the things that we say we'll do, our covenant, our oath before God is not something to be taken lightly. And upholding that gives incredible uh, demonstration of God's goodness. It puts a, puts a spotlight on how God is. If we as his people uphold our word, it shows that he's a God who will never fail to keep his word. In 1982, there was a, a story, a picture and a story on the front page of the Chicago Tribune. The story went that there were two girls from Moody Bible Institute who were uh, explaining that they were walking down the street and they, they found a wallet that had $350 cash in it and they returned it. They were on Rush Street on the way back to the Bible Institute and it was one night around 9 p.m. They see this wallet in the middle of the road and they pick it up and it's $350 in it so they take it to the police station. And this is unusual in the city of Chicago, as you can imagine, so unusual that that made the front page of the newspaper. And the story continued by describing a man that had been test driving a, a motorcycle that uh, he, he was wanting to purchase. And he's going down Rush Street and his wallet falls out. And he returns to the, to the motorcycle dealership and he's heartbroken because he won't be able to purchase the motorcycle. And he makes this passing comment. I, I guess the, uh, the, the wallet is gone unless some angel finds it and brings it back to me. Well, two angels from Moody Bible Institute did. And I thought as I read that story, you know, Moody Bible Institute in the 80s, they probably could not have afforded an advertisement in the Chicago Tribune, for sure not on the front page. I mean, the front page of the newspaper, right there on the front page. But this beautiful, kind, gracious act from these two girls gave incredible credibility to Moody Bible Institute, to the, to the church, to the people of God, because of these two girls and their, their act of kindness and integrity. 
And so it is with the people of Israel in our text this morning. They returned to principle. They didn't allow one failure to lead to another. There was no domino effect in Israel's history here because they, 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 they continued to sin by breaking their oath, their covenant. But instead, they returned to the seriousness of God's word. And as, an, as, and as a result, uh, Israel is this set-apart nation that the other peoples and the other nations would see that, that the Israelites are people that would keep their word. There's a lesson here for us as we make application of the text that we should not be stampeded by our failures. You should not be stampeded. Believer, this morning, hear the word of God. Do not be stampeded by your failures. What a beautiful truth for us this morning. How often does this happen to us? We fail in some way, and that sin leads to another sin, and then to another sin, and then then to a, a habit of covering it up, or a lifestyle of sinful choices and their consequences. I think of the, the husband that cheats on his wife. That's sin number one. Well, that's actually probably like sin number 10 or 12, because there's probably been a string of events that led to that point of talking inappropriately to other people that are not his spouse, and seeing things perhaps that were not holy and right for him but he cheats on his spouse and he thinks well this sin is done it's over with and it'll just hurt her if i know if she knows and so i'll lie about it i'll I'll lie to protect her and there's sin number two and that leads to this this attitude and this lifestyle of well what she doesn't know won't hurt her and so if i just continue to cover this up we're all the better and that leads to another sin and another sin another sin and it's justifying this this pattern of sin and a lifestyle of sin. And how gracious of God that he would give us an example here in Joshua in the Old Testament of how to avoid this cycle of sin. That one sin would, would not lead to another. And this morning, church, the, the, the reality for us is, is that we will fail. All of us will. We're sinful people. Even though God has is, is given us his spirit to live inside of us, to convict us of sin, we'll fail. Yeah, but when we do, we return to principles. We return to the word of God. We return to what his commands are, his law is. We seek the face of God and we find him there, not only ready to forgive us, which he will do, but to enable us, to allow us to avoid this continuation of sin. Ready and willing to to stop the cycle of sin, that we wouldn't get caught up in a lifestyle of making those sinful choices. Number three, what does God do with our failures? What does God do when we fail? And friends, there is great hope. There's great optimism in the conclusion of this text. Uh, I love the way that this unfolds. So Israel's leadership, right, follow the, the train of thought here in the text. The, Israel's leadership's doing the right thing now by upholding the covenant, the oath that they've made to the Gibeonites. They're, they're keeping their word uh, before them. But that doesn't resolve the issue of what to do with the Gibeonites, right? Just because they, they're keeping their word before God, that's the right thing to do. But now what do you do with the consequences of that sin? Uh, that, that's a reality for us. We're still going to face the consequences of sin even after we've repented. What would you do? Would you build a fence? Maybe, maybe that's the answer. Maybe we build a fence and they stay on one side of the fence. We stay on the other side of the fence. And uh, you're in the land. We've, we've spared your lives. We've not devoted you to destruction like we've promised, like we've covenanted to do. But you just remain on that side of the fence and don't mess with us. Maybe you chain them all together. You put guards around them to watch them 24-7 so that they can't do anything wrong. Maybe you make their conditions so terrible that they just want to leave, right? We kept our word. We didn't devote you to destruction, but we starved you to death so you had to go somewhere else. God has a better plan here, and I love the way that this plan unfolds. Joshua calls the Gibeonites to come before him, and he gives them a rhetorical question, and then he pronounces a curse on them. Look at verse 22. Joshua says this, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, 
Some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. And from that day forward, the servants, uh, they became servants of Israel, and by extension, servants of Yahweh himself. Now, when I read this, I have to admit that on the surface, this seems like a very risky move on God's part, right? Like you think about this from, from our perspective, from a human perspective. For some reason, God invites this pagan people right into the heart of Israel. And not just the heart of Israel, God actually brings them into the center of Israel's worship, to the house of my God, is what the command was in, in Scripture from, from, from Joshua. So God brings them right into the center of Israel's worship, supplying food and water for the worship of Yahweh. Now, get that picture. Idolaters, pagan people from Gibeon that are stationed near the tabernacle and intimately involved in the, the physical things required for the worship of God. And here's what's amazing. Kylan Dalage, an Old Testament scholar, says this in his research. There's no evidence that the Gibeonites ever held out the possibility or temptation for Israel to join them in idol worship. Study the rest of your Old Testament and, and Israelite history, and you don't find where the Gibeonites are leading them astray. Here's the truth, that God in his sovereignty knew something else was in store for this Gibeonite people. That instead of Gibeonite, the Gibeonites influ, influencing Israel for evil, that Gibeon would actually become a part of the promise themselves. That they would be brought into the covenant and the promises of Yahweh. This is incredible truth. And if you, if you look at the, the parallels, remember the story of Rahab. There are incredible parallels between the Gibeonites and Rahab. Remember, to this point, she's the only one in her family that we've seen spared as the Israelites move into the promised land. She was the prostitute in Jericho uh, that was allowed to, be, allowed to live. Look at the parallels between them. Both of them believed God was with the Israelites. Rahab recounts with an incredible profession of faith in chapter 2 of Joshua, verse 11. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. The Gibeonites, though not as detailed in chapter 9 that we just read, in verse 9, they say, Because of the name of the Lord your God, we've heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. And they go on to tell the rest of the things that he did. Rahab believed in the heart of pagan Jericho where she was living. She believed in God. She believed in Yahweh, renounced her gods, and went with Israel. The Gibeonites believed in the midst of a a forming rebellion and a confederacy that was coming against Israel. They believed that God was powerful. They renounced their gods and they go and be with Israel. That's not where the similarities stop. Think about even the further similarities here. They're both liars. The first time we meet Rahab and these Gibeonites, they're liars. Both of them proved uh, loyalty among God's people. I mean, she lives out her days. The text tells us she lived out her days in Israel. The same thing with the Gibeonites. We see at the end of this text. They could have rebelled, but they didn't. They lived out their days in Israel. Both of them willingly separated from their people. Both of them uh, could not be cast out from God's presence. That's clear to us in both texts. Rahab could not be cast out because of the promise that the spies made. The Gibeonites could not be cast out because of the oath of Joshua and the elders. Both of them moved to the very heart of Israel. I mean, think about this. Rahab moves to the heart of Israel in that she's in the lineage of Jesus. She's mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. The Gibeonites moved to the heart of Israel as they're intricately involved in temple and tabernacle worship. History tells us, if you go on to, to, to read the Old Testament and, and the rest of uh, Gibeon's history, that the Gibeonites remained close to the altar. It wasn't just a one-time event at this point, but they remained a part of that worship. 
Uh, because of their jobs as woodcutters and water carriers, uh, they were a vital part of worship. Uh, later in the book of Joshua, we'll see that the land is divided up. Once that they've conquered all of the land, it's divided up among the people. And Aaron, of the, the family of priests, will take the land that was formerly known as Gibeon. 400 years after that, David, you know of David in the Old Testament, he settles on a place to put the Ark of the Covenant. You know where he puts it? He puts it here in Gibeon. At least one of David's mighty men that, it's, that are mentioned in the Old Testament was known to be a Gibeonite. Several hundred years after that, Israel's conquered by the Babylonians. You know the story of Israel's uh, exile. When the people come back into the land, when they move out of Babylonian exile, back into the land, you know who comes with them? The Gibeonites. And then you get to the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah specifically mentions the Gibeonites as being a, a part of the people that helped rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. These are hundreds of years after this event. And you say, well, Matt, why would you give us all this history? Why is it relevant to us? You're putting us to sleep. Oh, because, friends, it's beautiful. It's an incredible tale of how God used the sin of Israel to lead to the inclusion of Gibeon into the promises and covenant of God. Desmond's having fun with it, too. <laughs> God, used, God used the sin of Israel, the failure of Israel here, to lead to the inclusion of Gibeon into the promises of God. That's incredible that he would, he would do that. And you literally can't separate the failure of Israel and the salvation of Gibeon. This is the way God and his province has worked. And this is what we see throughout Scripture, that what Satan means for evil, God purposes it for good. Here in, in, in Gibeon's account, God takes broken things, broken circumstances, and molds them into outcomes that are gloriously good. And so, church, as we close, there's great hope for us in this text in at least three ways. Let me mention these to you, and then we'll pray. Number one, God preserves us in our spiritual failure. That though all of us, even as believers and followers of Christ, we will fail. And that, the, 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 the sin that we start in, he can turn and he can form and he can shape and mold it into spiritual blessing. That grace abounds through the chief of sinners like you and I. Number two, that despite sin and moral failure, we can become a part of God's family. Despite our sin and our waywardness, we can become a part of God's family. In other words, if the Gibeonites can be saved, then so can we. We're all a bunch of lying Gibeonites. And God sent his own son while we were still in sin to die for us, Romans would tell us. And number three, God will keep his word to us. God will keep his word to us. If Israel would not break its covenant made in the name of God, even if that covenant was made on deception and, and lies, then how much more will the God of that covenant keep his word to us? And there's great hope for us in that for tomorrow. That tomorrow, whatever circumstances come into our lives, this week or month or next year as we're entering into a new year, whatever comes into our lives, God gives us hope because he will not fail us. He will not go back on his word. He's promised his presence with us, and he's true and he's faithful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us, that God, you are in the text before us this morning showing us that salvation is possible even in the worst of circumstances that by your spirit living in us you have given us the power to overcome sin and to see the cycle of sin come to an end that we don't have to get caught up in habitual lifestyles of, of sin upon sin upon sin and so this morning for every person in this room God I pray that if there are some here that do not know you they've never trusted you God would you speak to their hearts today draw them to yourself we thank you for Christ who died in our place to forgive us of our sins. We worship you, Jesus, this morning. 
Thank you for taking our sin and our punishment. God, be with us in this time of response. Help us to uh, respond to your word obediently and live as your people this week. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.